Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 35 of the podcast, the topic is Industry Analysts Shape Markets. Our guest is Kim Nickel, Research Director at Verdantix. In this conversation, we talk about the role of industry analysts, which is to identify and understand trends in their chosen sector. What is the role of analysts going forward? What will their function be? Who are the relevant suppliers at any given time? Augmented is a podcast for leaders, hosted by futurist Trun Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG.works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Kim, how are you today? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. I thought we'd talk about uh, the industry. Sounds like a good idea to me. It's one of my favorite topics. Yeah. Yeah. So Kim, you you studied engineering at Cornell, which I I, I love it up there, um, and you also have an MBA. So I guess that's what makes an analyst: your combination of business and uh, and technology. And you've had a, a a career as an industry analyst at various different firms, which is very handy for me uh, for this interview uh, because we're going to talk about what this analyst function is. It's a uh, kind of mysterious to to non analysts actually. Um, what what brought you to the to the field? Well, as you say, uh, for my background, you can see I have a business and a technology background. And honestly, it was reading the job descriptions, and it was everything I enjoyed doing. So, um, I you know I I the first job uh, that was definitely an industry analyst job. I was young enough that I went and applied in person. I carried my resume along with my six-month-old baby into their office and, and dropped it off to just to check and make sure that this was a real thing. Uh, and it's, it's everything I love to do. It's, it's taking in lots of information, staying on top of new technologies, uh, helping people. Uh, it's just a combination of, of everything I enjoy. And, and throughout your career, you have focused on a bunch of different technologies, uh, mostly, I guess, relevant to manufacturing and retail. So, you know, cloud, or the whole issue of cloud platforms, but including, uh, you know, fascinating things like AI, augmented reality, virtual reality, even computer vision stuff and IoT, and then into some blockchain stuff. Um, what are some of the things that have fascinated you the most, uh, you know, in, in this work? Most of, of what I enjoy are looking at technologies, researching technologies, researching how technologies are being used, are more of the things that are new. Uh, and um, that's been important to my career because um, if you look at the way even the analyst industry has evolved, it used to be that we all really struggled to get information about new technologies, and now we get too much. And so I get to be a person who who collects the information that's hard to find, but then also applies a practical lens to something that's um, often getting hyped in the market. And um, so, so really my specialty is... Uh, in newer areas of technology, newer uh, business processes, newer approaches, I'd say. I could just imagine as an analyst that it is very, I mean, it is your job, of course, to stay up to date. But it, like you said, it, there's not a lack of information, rather the opposite. And I'm assuming in your business, you, you sort of have to subscribe to to the work. So you, you get both the formal kind of industry reports of your competitors and others and then you have to find some proprietary sources of insight or you have to combine it in ways that makes it makes it interesting give, give me a little sense of w- what a workday looks like for an analyst well um 
So you have a lot of different stakeholders, and so those stakeholders consume your your energy, your knowledge, your day, uh, and so it's it's a combination of working with what I'll simply call IT buyers, but that includes people who influence the buying process of technology. They may be in the IT organization, they may not be. So it's there's some por- part of the the day that's speaking to those IT buyers. Um, some part of it is talking to the IT suppliers, uh, so that's a pretty broad category too. Those could be uh, uh, services, software, hardware, you name it. Uh, and then uh, there's also the financial analyst community and the press. Uh, and so the press is probably a really small percent, maybe 5% uh, financial analysts are uh, for most of the firms I've worked for, it's, you know, less than 10%. It, it's really, um, I'd say another, you know, quarter of the time is with the, um, with both the buyers and the, and the suppliers. And then there's always, you need the time to really um, absorb the information, organize it and put it into a format where it can be shared back out. So that could be a PowerPoint presentation, but it could also be a, you know, literally a, a PDF, a Word doc. Um, and, uh, you know, my preference is that it have lots of graphs and, uh, you know, headings and subheadings and bullets, but but basically a written format or a presentation style format. And as well as, you know, more Excel type of, you know, forecast data, kind of data intensive pro- uh, products. Well, I'm still struck though by what you're saying about the amount of human interaction and human uh, data gathering and interviews uh, compared to the more cold kind of analytics focus. Because when you read your reports, or not yours specifically, but the ones coming from the analyst community, it seems like every other PowerPoint does have statistics associated with it. So surely a lot of it has to do with gathering those numbers, but you're still, it's the conversations that, that you are focusing on now. Yeah, so um, most analyst firms have a large service that they run, which means that um, there are often specialists in the survey development and the the initial survey analysis. Um, not to say that there isn't for most analysts, but but that is something that you then can reuse in multiple ways. And so that's why I don't, I don't put the survey part and the data, you know, the actual, you know, statistics type part as a big part of a typical analyst day. It's certainly using that information and understanding the uh, impact of that information and, you know, the so what, uh, uh, you know, about that data. Um, but it's, it's not, um, Actually, going out and surveying people is not a part of every day. No, I get that. And I think that's very important to point out because it's the context around the data that is the special sauce. Like, clearly, you have to have the data first. You have to have and Mm -hmm. choose the right data and frame it the right way. But it is exactly, it's the contextualization that you spend, uh, you know, a lot of time with. Um, Just, I just want to say something about surveys. You know, one of the um, important things when when I advise people like how to use publicly available data, you know, you should always be really careful about the source and also how people interpret it. And that that's true for technology uh, as well as pretty much anything in life. You know, make sure you understand, you know, how big was the survey? Who did they actually survey? Sometimes the way the questions are asked, they lead the respondents so much that the data really isn't worth a whole heck of a lot. Um, so, I always um, advise people to be cautious about the source of the data um, when, whenever they read a, a data point. Yeah, and Kim, is that getting any better? I mean, you know, it's not like statistical analysis or awareness of manipulation of data is any is a new topic. But is is the industry as a whole getting better, or are there just more sources? So there's just more sources of bad data as well, and it's like tempting sometimes to kind of throw in the newest because it has seemingly the right kind of angle to it. But like you said, it, it, it wasn't perhaps carried out the right way. I would like to hope that the uh, survey 
data collection process is getting better. Um, I still, uh, you know, it's like anything. People people think that anybody can do a survey. Anybody can write a survey. Anybody can analyze the data. And, uh, you know, um, I would say, no, that is not true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have looked at that space uh, quite a bit and I've spent a lot of time trying to create surveys and it's uh, you know and being graded on it as well and graded others it's it's not easy stuff it's it's actually there's a trade you know it's a trade involved Mm -hmm. um, trade skills Um, as an analyst you not only gather data and shape it you know and sort of put it into written form uh, you also to some extent I guess shape a market that's what you do can you tell me a little bit about that sort of market creation process so in in your field like manufacturing how would you say a market gets gets formed with or a sector gets formed within within manufacturing and what extent to what extent does an analyst play a role there yeah so um the, an analyst is supposed to be an independent party, right? So an analyst doesn't work for the, the buyer. An analyst doesn't work for the supplier. An an, analyst is supposed to represent an independent source who can gather information from uh, multiple companies and, uh, and draw conclusions and, uh, an analysis, right? So the idea is that when an analyst sees a common need and a common approach to solving that need, uh, he or she should be uh, defining a market. And this is actually um, something that that takes some time. So if we um, if I if I look at some common categories like ERP, and we were talking about MES, for example, uh, ERP, I believe the term Gartner takes credit for, and MES, uh, AMR Research, where I used to work, um, takes takes credit for that term. And the idea is that the people who were at Gartner and AMR at the time of the, the development of those markets saw that there was a business problem that needed to be solved, and they saw a uh, you know, two or more uh, vendors, IT suppliers, uh, creating an application to solve those problems. Um, the The whole reason for creating a market, though, is ultimately because when companies buy technology, they they want to be able to create a short list. They don't usually want to just go to one single company and say, "I have this problem." And can you solve it? They want to be able to say, you know, here is the functionality I need. Um, here is, uh, you know, here is the way I've seen other companies solve this problem. You know, what will it take for me to be successful using that technology? And and the the creation of a market speeds the process. Um, there are there have been times in the past where analysts or analyst firms have tried to create markets and it just hasn't, you know, a term hasn't caught on or what they thought was going to be a market ended up getting absorbed by another market. Uh, so it, it's not, um, there are plenty of IT suppliers who have tried to create a market, but again, it's very hard for uh, a supplier to take that kind of independent approach and say, this is a market and uh, there's nobody else in it. Uh, it just, um, it kind of uh, frustrates the market in, in that they're, they want to build a market so that um, the IT buyers want to see a market created so that it simplifies their process of acquiring that technology successfully. That's interesting. Maybe you can clarify this for me. It's always a little confusing when you're analyzing markets, I guess. So there's this term category that comes from retail, which is a very, very, very defined thing within a market. And then you have sort of sectors that is somewhat wider and then you have markets, and you, you, you. We were now talking about defining a market. What do all these things mean? Do they mean that you actually are able to identify buyers and sellers in a very distinct type of product, or is it not as clear as that? So when you say creating a market, or or people say let's create a category, or here's this category, does it really imply that 
there's a very distinct group selling this and only this. It would seem to me like these are sort of old school terms from a time when things were much more fixed and set in stone than things are these days. But the business models in SaaS and things, things like that, they evolve and they take on different form all I, I the think- time. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, when the ERP and the MES markets were created, it was really a, a fairly well-defined application. And so I don't want to call it monolithic. That's the wrong term. But I, I think um, the way that companies are acquiring or building software has really changed. We... we don't see as often that people are are going out and buying, you know, if you look at some of the, uh, uh, to explain this a little better, if you look at some of the the historic ERP investments, and I'm going to use that because it's a very big category, they were multi-million dollar deals. And uh, most companies, um, especially in the manufacturing industry, um, can't afford that because there are a lot of small and medium-sized manufacturers. Plus, the way that applications are developed has evolved quite a bit. Uh, and, you know, the code that's used, the tools that are used. Uh, and so they're, they're more smaller applications, more applications solving a smaller uh, business challenge. And so is it right to create all of these kind of micro markets or micro categories? I'm not sure what the right answer is, but I I think we've, because the way that technology is, is built and consumed, we may not need to have uh, such kind of large markets or large categories. Now I'm going to say, I don't, I don't fret too much about, uh, the difference between category and market and sector, but you're right. In the in the retail industry, they are very precise on on what those mean. But it, in the technology space, I'm not so sure. Uh, so I think that answers your question, does it? Yeah, no, it, it does. But so ERP is one thing. That's obviously a, a massive space. Uh, right. If you look at manufacturing execution systems or MES, which you said, you know, uh, uh, AMR takes takes the credit for. When was that uh, term, for, uh, you know, created, and uh, who were in the space then, and where is this? You know, can you explain a little bit about this category? It's an immensely interesting uh, category that's now uh, arguably at the heart of, of kind of an, an, a new wave of, of change. So it's a pretty interesting category to think about. Yeah, I'm not sure I know all the details. Um, you'd you'd have to get some of my my old AMR colleagues on, or uh, someone who spends a lot of time in this in the MES market to go into the details. But I'll I'll give you the high level as I I remember them. So um, so ERP. I keep coming back to ERP because it was one of the first really large categories of software. And it, if you you know if you know what an ERP stands for, the P being planning, um, the idea of the manufacturing execution was to be the complement to the planning side, the actual execution piece. And um, there were, uh, I'm going to get myself in trouble if I try to guess who the vendors were at the time, the IT vendors were at the time. Well, that doesn't matter so much. I'm just sort of curious, like generally, uh, so you would say that the, the category evolved out of the, the broader ERP space as like, you know, now we, we really are seeing that the execution is becoming more a prominent element. And, and something that could be done through a uh, almost off-the-shelf application, so as opposed to a fully custom uh, application. Uh, so yes, it was the, it was the complement, and it was something that based on the... Um, the companies that were in the market, and and a lot of them were the ERP type of companies that were expanding into MES, but they were also specialty ones. And the way the um, MES market has evolved is there's been there has been this kind of synergy um, between ERP and MES for a long time. And if you also look at what some of the um, you know 
players in this market today, uh, they are uh, sometimes described as ERP and sometimes described as MES. So it's a it seems to be a, a fluid category that nobody draws a hard box around. At least I don't. I should say. Well, it inter- it's interesting what you said that it kind of moved from execute from planning to execution. I'm just wondering. Uh, so there, there there are some other terms that I'm aware of. So system of record versus system of engagement. I guess w- one of the newer issues, and which is why I wanted to talk about the MES category, is that even within MES, there is a an increased focus now on the endpoint, or, or actually, I should say, on the on the whole chain. So that's one, right? Not just talking about the planning, but the actual execution, both early stage in the product development and end to end, you know, with the supply chain. But, anyways, you know, a lot of these kind of very heavy uh, systems that have everything, they're sort of called system of record because it's, that's where you track everything and that's, that's where all the financials go into and kind of all the numbers that eventually make it into, you know, annual reports and, and whatnot, but, it, but it's certainly also tracking, uh, you know, of the products sort of process. But systems of engagement uh, would tend to be, I guess, a, a sort of an emerging category of systems that could be related to this, but they are not necessarily the system of record, meaning that they are where you execute a, a lot of things or maybe where the workers gain some sort of productivity, but it could be more that li- they're lighter systems and maybe they don't have kind of the stability of these original systems. Um, but h- how do you see this? Uh, I mean, is this now... Uh, still to be understood for you as uh, as an execution system or you know h- how are we to understand these new uh, software platforms that are starting to emerge in in this overall space that are not you know mo- definitely not monolithic because they don't carry out the sum total of, of of everything that the initial systems did but they are on the other hand somewhat more nimble so h- how do you how are we to understand these systems sort of within the within this nomenclature? Wow, that's a that's a big question. So one thing I would say is that the term system of engagement, um, to distinguish it from a system of record, I'm totally uh, in agreement with that. I've historically seen the term system of engagement used for more of the customer-facing uh, type of applications and not necessarily uh, in the plant. And so that's absolutely something that may evolve because your employees are, you know, in need of applications that are are not necessarily system of record. So, I, you know, I would be okay with kind of looking at this as something that absolutely needs to engage with employees. I'm not going to, I'm not going to draw any kind of box around that term. But um, I think that what's important for the execution systems to do is to support the everyday requirements of the worker. And one of the things we used to talk about um, at one of my past analyst firms was recognizing that there's a difference between the strategic and the tactical. So, um, you know, that's that's one of the factors and you can even so strategic being more long-term type of requirements um, and the tactical being all the way down to the decisions you need to make in the moment. And I I think that's important for an execution system to be able to do is to help support those decisions that need to be made in the moment. And we don't have to be, you know, moment meaning microsecond or second. It could be, you know, in this hour, in this specific, um, uh, shift, you know, what decisions do I need to make right now um, and, and to hit, hit my production numbers to uh, serve the, um, produce for the orders that I have today um, and uh, make the right product at the right time. If we if we go back to this cloud term that has kind of come in and out of your career, uh, what would you say is the situation now in the manufacturing industry? Is are, are most systems and thereby also most plants 
moving to the cloud now and has that shift sort of occurred? It's sort of an interesting question because for people outside of manufacturing, it would seem so obvious because cloud has been such a big part of the debate for the last, I guess, decade, right? But, but it's not super obvious in manufacturing. Where, where are we with cloud generally? Yeah. Uh, so my research into into cloud and the adoption of cloud computing for manufacturers uh, probably goes back a good ten years, and I um, I always surprised people when I told them that manufacturers were among the earliest adopters of cloud computing. You know, when we would do the surveys at IDC, we would see pretty great numbers. Uh, for how many companies were actually using cloud and how many were planning to adopt cloud. But, you know, those numbers needed to be qualified when we talked about them because um, the the profile of a manufacturer is that you have a corporate headquarters and you have many plants and you have really lean IT teams at those plants usually, especially with the smaller and mid-sized uh, manufacturers. and um, a lot of those, a, a lot of the the manufacturers also with the speed at which they needed to acquire and divest of, of plants and businesses and so on, a lot of those manufacturers looked to the cloud for the um, kind of basic applications, you know, emailing, uh, <laughs> calendaring, uh, all of the... Um, I'm gonna. I might get myself in trouble here. What I think of as commodity applications, <laughs> uh, and they—they, uh, they, I think that they bought into those types of apps to simplify the way they worked, and then they um, they stayed on premise for what was actually running the plant and sometimes the supply chain, but because of the way that they needed to collaborate with other companies, they were willing to put some supply chain functionality uh, into the cloud uh, fairly early. So the, the, I am definitely seeing more investment and more willingness to put the core uh, app, plant-based applications into the cloud. And there are a lot of companies that are really making that possible. There are a lot more technologies, you know, making that possible around the actual networks, um, you know, in and out of the plant. I, I'm not sure that the numbers are really... Um, They're not where I thought they would be today. However, there's still a lot of confidence in the growing use of uh, cloud-based uh, applications in the plant. And you can just look at the recent headlines. Uh, you know, here we here we are uh, looking at two recent acquisitions of uh, of major suppliers in this market, QAD and Plex, and. Uh, that to me just says that there's a confidence in the use of cloud-based applications. Now, QAD and Plex are obviously different approaches uh, to to these, and um, but still, I think it's a sign that there's still investment in these apps, and there's a growing reliance on the cloud. Um, I've understood that there is really quite a big distinction, even among large. Uh, players, large manufacturers among their different sites. And, you know, if you have a large multinational, they will tend to have some flagship sites that they have invested in that may be larger. They may maybe skew larger because it's, I guess, easier to sort of defend like, okay, we're going to spend some money on these. And they would tend to be uh, you know, they c c could be perhaps part of s some large sort of on-prem deployments, but either way, they have worked on these sites and they have invested and they have a certain amount of efficiencies there. But the, but it's a quite another challenge, the fact that a lot of large companies also rely on smaller sites because that's just the way of the nature of of their business is they have, uh, you know, a bunch of disparate smaller sites that also carry out pretty crucial functions. Um in in your time as an analyst, when you were you know when you were advising clients, how do you account for that the the sort of the non monolithic character of their business? I mean, manufacturing would seem to just it's not one thing; it is so many 
uh, different functions. And, and like I said, these sites vary so much. How do you account for that in a strategy, in an IT strategy? I, I think that's really important what you just said, which is that manufacturing is not one thing. You look at every single product and even, you know, manufacturers who make the same product and they make them differently. Um, and, you know, maybe the production line process is almost exactly the same, but the suppliers, the, the, just the, the, massive number of decisions in order to make a product um, mean that uh, the plant managers and the local IT folks want to be able to decide what works best for them. What's important is that they support that system of record uh, type of requirement, not how they make their daily decisions in the plant. You know, that they support the companies, you know, requirements for orders and the, and the strategy for growth and so on, you know, not exactly how a product is made, uh, you know, that they meet specific quality requirements. Of course, all of those things are, are company decisions, strategic decisions. Uh, and we, as a, as an analyst, we often saw that there would be one application that was the system of record in at the company, and then there would be a different vendor supplying plant A and a different vendor supplying plant B, not just because they were making different products, but because they they served a different customer or they had to hit uh, different, I don't know, different targets or, or what have you. So that is... Um, that is why we spend so much time talking about standards in terms of data sharing and the importance of being able to roll data up, the importance of being able to roll data up and analyze data um, in a, um, at a local site as well as across the company. And so a, a lot of this is, about, is really about uh, making sure that you can meet the company's information management, data management, uh, analysis requirements, uh, local and um, national regulations. I mean, all of that stuff comes into play. And so it's it's not so much, um, the company doesn't have to say, we standardized on this MES system. They d- it just isn't necessary. Uh, and that that's, uh, to me, that's a good thing. And so that's why um, one of the evolutions that we're seeing in manufacturing is is what kind of governance needs to be in effect where, how do we allow, I mean, we haven't even started talking about IT and OT <laughs> integration. And, and that's ultimately what what has to be considered is how do you make the OT meaning operational technology and IT, of course, the information technology, how do you make those decisions go hand in hand? Tell me more about that. Cause it's, it, it would seem to be an interesting uh, issue. Well, definitely in, in manufacturing because operations is, is at the heart of it. Why would you say there even is a conflict in the first place? Why? Uh, I mean, are the is it the systems that are different, or is it the people that are the? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a leading question there. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, it's it's both, of course, uh, and it's you know you have to look at the history to understand the um, the conflict, and but I, I think a lot of that's being bridged. So part of it is that OT. Um, operational technology was designed to serve the plant. And often there were engineers, manufacturing engineers, who made those decisions. And of course, we know that um, OT has has added more and more IT, you know, into the system and how we manage that system. And, and IT, you know, has evolved from a computer scientist, a developer, kind of mindset and they I you know I um, come from an engineering background and I work in the IT industry and I I still see that conflict and some of it's the type of people who are attracted to each of those disciplines but I, th- I think that's really changing and so um, 
I hate to say it's the younger generation who's helping us change it, but it's anybody who's really forward thinking, who recognizes the way that that technology, whether it's the I or the O technology is evolving and really getting better. Um, but yeah, engineers and computer scientists are historically very different people. <laughs> it, it is a mystery almost, I guess, how they were all bucketed into one group, i.e. engineers, and even taught in the same schools, even though now, like in retrospect, that was a smart move because this is the real, this is the issue, right? Because if the two groups continue to to move apart, uh, that that would seem to be an issue. But 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 there is an educational, uh, an experiential journey on both uh, sides, right? Because, I mean, I uh, have seen, you know, young software engineers don't necessarily have all the intricacies of an operational plant in mind when they try to come up with creative solutions and code bases that, you know, are going to solve some quick fix to a problem, you know, with like some bright solution that doesn't necessarily always work either. So there, yeah. you know, there's, it's not like the, the young hip crowd has all the solutions, right? There's, there's some engineering, uh, and, and experience from, from the plant side that, that so I talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, you know, in my career, so I went to an Ivy League school, you know, the best of the best kind of engineering school with lots of great research. Uh, but, but really, let's face it, it was super theoretical. Uh, and my first job out of college was at Underwriters Labs, where I, you know, my, my cheeky description of it is I went to work to break things, which you know, <laughs> we did a lot more. It was about product quality and compliance. And, uh, you know, I had to take apart, I had to take apart products. I had to take apart motors. I had to look at how the, the, the circuitry was done. And, um, and it was very practical and hands-on and it was a, there was a learning curve. And, and I think that's true for, you know, any, any background, if someone's education is very practical, whether it's in school or, you know, in a job, if it's very practical, uh, connecting with the people who are very theoretical, it just takes some time. Um, but I, you know, that's why companies need to define goals and objectives. That's why we say our objective here is to make a happy customer. Our objective is to, you know, is the perfect order. Uh, you know, that's, that's how you make these people come together. You see how they help each other and create a more successful company and a more successful product. Hmm. I want to move to thinking a little bit more uh, about the next few years and how things might evolve. And um, I want to first maybe just think about the fact that historically there have been three plus analyst firms that have sort of managed to, or maybe more uh, in this space, but that, that have managed to create these concepts, not just coin terms. So we would just been been around that. But you know, you mentioned previously Gartner. So Gartner's magic quadrant, you know, has has become kind of a, a a big big item. IDC has the marketscape, I guess, and maybe other terms. Forrester has their wave. Um, what is the role, do you think, going forward of these large analyst firms versus other breakout firms in terms of? Um, are, are they going to still be able to have these overarching terms that's, that matter and, and really shape markets where you have to be included? Or is it, are we moving towards a decade where there are going to be, to your point, um, more sources of information? And, and, and you know, the, as the user of this information, whether you are in industry or, you know, on the market side, uh, you know, investing in, in, in this space, how are you going to be able to navigate this? If uh, maybe this again is a leading question, but I'm I'm going to posit, uh, posit that you know IDC, Gartner, and Forrester are the are big ones, but they're not the only ones, and the marketplace, even of analysts, is is wider. What is that? Yeah. So one, do you agree to that? And then what 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 does that do to our understanding of these markets? Yeah. I, I, so. Um 
I, if you had asked me in you know 1995, I was really trying to figure out how the and the major analyst firms could survive, given that all so much information was now being made available for free uh, on on the web. Right? It was just all you had to do was was a, a search, an internet search, and uh, you could you could get all this information. You know, I did and have come to realize that there is a major trust and credibility factor. And one of the things I'll say is that, yes, I think those large analyst firms are going to continue to be successful because most analysts are not really good marketers. They're, they're analysts. <laughs> they're cheerleaders and curmudgeons. They're not always, you know, they're not, they're, they're not always, um, interested or willing to do all of the things that make a, a business successful. And so the the whole uh, infrastructure that wraps around the analysts within these large firms exists for a reason. However, I describe analysts as, uh, you know, you should find an analyst to work with. And this goes for both IT buyers and IT suppliers. You should find an analyst to work with that you trust and will be honest with you when, in terms of what they really know and what they don't know. And also be willing to share an opinion about what they know. And, and, so to me, I describe I've described analysts as it's like picking the right yoga instructor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, picking the right you know personal trainer or coach. It it has to be someone that you really like their style and you trust them. And uh, I I because of that because of that importance of the personal relationship. Uh, I think there are going to be plenty of independent analysts and plenty of, of boutique analyst firms. And, and in fact, I'm, I'm hoping to work for one of those boutique analyst firms in the, in the future. And I, um, I also advise people, if, if you want to get a little bit of a sense of an analyst, uh, you know, go to their company website, look at their LinkedIn posts, uh, see if they post anything on Twitter. Um, you can get a sense of an analyst uh, based on some public information. Hmm. Well, where are we headed in the next decade? Now I'm asking you as an analyst. So we're, we've talked about around the industry and the profession of, of, of an analyst and, and you know what might go into that. Now I, I wanted to sort of challenge you more on some industry developments that you are either excited about or that where you see that some technology trends are coming to a fore. What, what do you see emerging in the manufacturing space right now? It's kind of a broad, broad question. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited about the way that we're starting to see artificial intelligence really used. And it it's not, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, replacing humans. I am talking about something that you talked about in an earlier podcast about augmentation and some automation. And I'm uh, really interested in, in seeing that develop. I think that there are um, lots of day in and day out decisions that could be supported with with AI as well as some automation. And then, you know, some of the coolest stuff I've seen over the, the last year or so has been in that immersive experience, uh, the augmented reality and the virtual reality. Um, one of the things you know we talk about in the manufacturing industry is the shortage of workers. There is nothing like showing someone how cool manufacturing is with, uh, with a headset or with, you know, augmented or virtual reality. Um, there is nothing more cool than showing someone how they can actually do a job by uh, using um, augmented reality to walk them through something uh, and give them that confidence. Uh, it, I just, um, I, I, I think that it inspires more people to um, to learn about manufacturing and to really be willing to, to join the industry. 
and I I hope that more manufacturers see that that's part of what we need to do is to um, demonstrate that that technology will help us attract that next um, generation of workers. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I, I try to ask everyone who comes on this podcast, it's kind of an impossible question because everyone who is on this podcast is already predisposed to being excited about these things. Yes. But I always wonder, why isn't everyone else excited? Uh, you know, in most high schools, you know, they don't have access to all of this technology, right? And um, we, I, I think we are seeing a resurgence in what we used to call vo-tech schools, vocational technology. Um, I, I don't think that that term is always used, um, but the, you know, the, the wood shop of the past is now the technology shop uh, in, in a lot of high schools. And I, I think it's just exposure. You know, I, I personally, um, when I work with kids or when I talk to kids, I, I try to talk about how interesting manufacturing is. Um, I, I think we have to be, be careful in that, um, we, we start to, we start to market manufacturing in a different way. And, and we have to start when, when kids are in uh, middle school and junior high school and support it all the way through high school. This is maybe not a question where you have the full answer, but can we, I mean, there's, there's a lot of excitement to be had, but can we make a promise that holds water in the long term? Because I think the ultimate answer to why people aren't excited is that they are students of history. They are students of their parents who lost their jobs. They are students of just reading newspapers about factory closings. I mean, to what extent can we actually confidently as an industry give people the sense that when you walk into a wood shop or, you know, like a shop floor classroom in, in high school and you are excited about a practical craft, not only will the teaching of that craft, you know, be augmented and, and very interesting and it's this hybrid, and I've always worked with my hands so I can relate to this, but can we really confidently make the prediction that for most people going in this direction, as long as you are open to learning, of course, these advanced tools, because if not, you know, you will, of course, be sidelined as someone who doesn't embrace these tools. But if you do embrace these tools, is there a path for most people? Because we're not talking here about the, you know, just the top 10% of something. What we would have to say is, generally, this is a great industry to go into and there will be good jobs going forward. Would you, would you confidently be able to make that prediction? <laughs> wow, put me on the spot there. Um, yeah. So I, I think, you know, we, I'm, that cheerleader and curmudgeon, right? So the curmudgeon in me says, as much as we look at manufacturing as, uh, you know, the industry has done well in terms of the percentage of GDP that it contributes to, but let's face it, the number of jobs has decreased uh, significantly because you don't need as many people to actually produce something as you did you know, 50 years ago. Uh, I, I want to remind people that, that manufacturing is not just what happens in a factory of 150 people, that manufacturing is just as important to, important to creativity and design as it is to the actual production piece. And, and what I mean by that is the, the thinking of designing and production should go hand in hand. So anybody who thinks they're an entrepreneur, anybody who thinks they're a, a designer or a creator, that they should be recognizing that they also need to be involved in the manufacturing process. And one of the, um, I, I recently joined a nonprofit board who's been focused on on the arts. Uh, in a small town in uh, southern Maine, uh, historically a textile uh, t 
town and they obviously have gone through a lot of changes and and what they like to show is that there's a connection between creativity and commerce. Well, you don't get to commerce unless there's some production piece. And so I, I really want to um, make sure that anybody, like they don't have to think I want to be in manufacturing. All they have to do is want to say, I want to be an entrepreneur and I want to design things. Well, then you need to also be part of the manufacturing industry. I just want that connection to be more seamless. I think that's an excellent point. I think if if everyone who said that they want to be an entrepreneur, you know, had a little bit less coffee and, you know, <laughs> was sitting in various co-working spaces thinking up, you know, dreamy digital ideas and, and instead started working on something and started manufacturing and testing out something physical and integrated with, with the digital aspect much earlier and realize the complexities of, of creating, you know, a hybrid product that, that actually has to be manufactured and crafted, you, we would be in a different place. And uh, I agree that that seems like a very, very interesting uh, proposition. Thanks so much. Well, Kim, look, I, uh, I feel more informed on what an analyst does. And I feel op more optimistic, I think, on your, your own industry's contribution i think it is a bit of a mystical profession it's a you know it is sort of uh you are musing from from the mountains but now i feel like uh, i have a sense of where you're standing well thank you for letting me share a little bit about my profession and i'm i'm always happy to to explain it but i do often explain it so you're not the only one asking some questions well, thanks. Thanks a lot. I hope I can have you back uh, uh, someday and, and have you uh, comment on what has happened since last time. Thanks so much, Kim. Thank you. You have just listened to episode 35 of the Augmented Podcast with host Thrun Arne Unheim. The topic was Industry Analysts Shape Markets. Our guest was Kim Nickel, Research Director at Verdantix. In this conversation, we talked about the role of industry analysts now and in the future. My takeaway is that industry analysts are surprisingly relevant in today's information-rich markets. Perhaps because of information overload or the need for trusted sources of information. But as industry morphs and categories change faster than before, can firms keep up with the markets? And can analysts create a still picture of an evolving situation? Analysts are traditionally helpful for the buying process. And navigating the manufacturing industry is becoming more and more difficult as traditional vendors are complemented by a myriad of startups. As analysts assess trends, create segment taxonomies, size up markets, and prepare industry forecasts, what is the future? Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 42, Business Beyond Buzzwords, episode 32, Covering Industrial Innovation, or episode 9, The Fourth Industrial Revolution Post-COVID-19, Augmented Industrial Conversations That Matter.